1: Prohibition ended up having many unexpected consequences throughout the United States. There was the obvious, the loss of alcohol sales and the dire situations for restaurants to stay afloat without a good third of their revenue stream. But aside from the obvious, Prohibition ended up increasing alcohol consumption rather than eliminating it. As Prohibition neared, liquor stores encouraged people to stock up for the rest of your life But homebrew and consuming your handmade alcohol in the privacy of your home remained legal. So many people started making their own beer, wine, and spirits. The quality base level of alcoholic products plummeted. And especially in the case of spirits, it became a public health concern, with inexperienced distillers leaving in the heads and tails and serving lethal spirits to unsuspecting drinkers. The country also lost money many states found themselves at a loss without the taxes on alcoholic products that had previously funded their governments. The federal government alone lost billions of dollars in tax revenue and spent hundreds of millions to enforce prohibition. The legal system became overwhelmed with prohibition cases. The jails filled, and organized crime infiltrated cities with nightlife potential. And medical whiskey became a thing. Doctors would prescribe it for all sorts of things. Can you imagine? Oh, oh, you have the flu? You should go drink some whiskey. Anxiety? Well, go down to the pharmacist and, and take a shot of whiskey. You have a headache? Well, drink some whiskey. The pharmacy business boomed as pharmacists became one of the main pseudo-legal arenas in which to obtain alcohol. And for our purposes in particular, as we examine the California wine trade, prohibition greatly changed the landscapes. Wineries that didn't go into legal sacramental wine, for the most part, became defunct. A few changed crops and started growing fruits and nuts. And strangely, the grape acreage went up in California, as growers legally sold grapes to home winemakers, and as growers packaged grape concentrate in brick form, again for home winemakers. As California grapes were shipped back east for home winemaking, a whole new set of challenges arose. Hardy grapes with thick skins, like Alicante Boucher, became popular because they could survive the cross-country journey without rotting. But luckily, not all the pre-prohibition vines were ripped out and replaced with these varieties. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who takes inspiration from an old patch of Californian pre-prohibition Tokai Friulano and who makes wine for a winery that went through many changes throughout the 1900s, but that ultimately survived prohibition.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level, to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, Partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Dan Petrosky of Larkmeat on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you here.
2: No, my pleasure.
0: So you're actually a New York guy originally, right?
2: Yes. Born and raised in Brooklyn. Grew up in the 70s and 80s. Completely different place back then than it is today. I grew up with an Italian-American working mother, four kids of the youngest of four. 6 p.m. every night we were at the dinner table. We, uh, we had takeout once a month. It was either pizza or Chinese. And we went out to eat once a year. We were sitting out on the porches in the summer. We had the hydrants on. We had the pizzeria on the corner. We had, you know, interracial conflict. We had kind of families who loved each other, who hated each other, that, you know, made fun of each other. It was New York City was uh, and Brooklyn during that era was just a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of positive energy, creative energy from music to art to graffiti. Um
0: What were your aspirations as a kid? I mean, what did you want to do?
2: When I was a kid, interestingly enough, I was a voracious reader of magazines. We were a family that didn't travel. I always looked at the pages of magazines and newspapers and I flipped through them on a weekly, monthly basis. And I saw beautiful people and under canopies of trees eating great looking food and drinking fine bottles of wine and I wanted to travel. So magazines were attractive to me as a way that you would lose yourself in a book, or or movies, or something else. So I, I for some reason, I've, I had such a tactile experience and a kind of aspirational experience with magazine. I wanted to actually work in magazines. That's a really weird thing to say. But what I did was I pursued it. So by the time I made my way to college, I was interning at Interview Magazine, the magazine Antiques, I was in, interning at New York Times, um, their custom publishing division, which produced magazines. And eventually, ended up working at Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine.
0: What was that like?
2: Working at Time Magazine uh, in the era that I did, which was uh, late '90s, early 2000s, it was very much like Mad Men. There were bar carts, there were shoe shines in the office. There were everyone had a refrigerator, more beer than there were whiskey. There were corporate cards. There were three martini lunches. There were you know bartenders who knew your name when you walked into the Cite, the restaurant at the Time Life Building at the time. It wasn't until 2002 that smoking was banned in the office. Even then, you had to close your door and you can still smoke. But uh, things changed with 9-11. Kind of culture changed because of that. And uh, there was a very kind of shocking and alarming time in my life. It forced me into business school. My professionalism, my day job, my, my world that I lived in, the clock was reset. And we all kind of took a step back. And due to that, I felt that things were, you know, there were two things going on at that time. There was uh, this major political event that uh, was very catastrophic. And then you had, you know, the the dot com boom coming off of the dot com bust, as they can say. So I think there was was a lot of like cultural shifting at the time. I think there was an escapism after 9 11. And at escapism, people fled to, to alcohol, to booze, to food. And they were going to restaurants. They, you know, the scene was back. Uh, people were, were, were taking the opportunity to kind of uh, escape from the realities of what was going on in the world. And I think that people wanted to be out. People wanted to be community. They wanted to build a community. And the best way to build a community when you're living in a one bedroom apartment is to go out to a restaurant, do you have to go to a bar, have a drink, look at your neighbor? So I, I went down that path and in a weird and a weird twist of fate, I one day sat down with my mother and we were talking about her career and her future. And this is a woman who, this is in 2004, she's uh, going on 63 years old, tells me that she is going to work until she's 70. I said, it didn't hit me at the time what she was talking about but she said it made her feel alive she said i want to work every day i'm happy i laugh i joke i love my colleagues i left that conversation with my mother and i said i am going to work the next 40 years of my life whoa i took a pause and i said what the hell am i doing with my life i had a midlife crisis at 32 but I, I stepped away from that, and it was 2004. I was in uh, business school at NYU while I was still working at Time, and I had some amazing friends from all walks of life, and one of them happened to be um, someone near and dear to my heart who uh, from Sicily, and he had some friends in, on the island who's who owned wineries, and I said to myself, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm taking my dreams and aspirations, and I'm Putting it on pause, and I'm going to move to Italy.
0: He wanted a reset.
2: He wanted a reset, and he told me I was crazy. I had an, a lucrative opportunity to go work at the Wall Street Journal at the time. I rejected the job, turned it down. I resigned from Time. I packed my bags, and by June 2005, I was on my way to Sicily. It was a very quiet, very, um, uh, very kind of solitary place, and it gave me a, a lot of time to sit back and think, and that was. Amazing. I wish it upon everyone to have that opportunity. And I took a big risk. I was 32 years old. I was climbing the corporate ladder. I had great opportunities ahead of me. And I decided to, you know, turn away. And the reason for that is because during my corporate years, I started to pursue wine as a as a young collector, young connoisseur. And I did a lot of reading about wine during that period. And so when I took that that step away, it was part wine adventure, part, you know. You know, me aspiring to the things as a, you know, as nostalgia when I was flipping through the pages of those travel magazines and and lifestyle magazines. So I spent a year living in uh, Catania, Sicily, working with a family who owned della Cate. I was considered an outsider, so I wasn't really let into the cellar very much. I spent most of my time in the vineyards. Um, It was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday job. Uh, lasted a full year. And during that time, I had the freedom to travel and see parts of Italy, a place that I had visited to two or three times prior to that, thanks to having a corporate job and having a little money in my pocket. So, But I really got to go in deep um, into regions, uh, whether it be Piemonte or Friuli the Veneto. Spent one weekend a month in Rome. And I always say to this day, I didn't learn how to make wine in Italy. I learned how to appreciate it. And that is really important to me.
0: So what uh, was the wine culture like in Italy? I mean, what did you see in 4
2: Wine's not put on a pedestal. Wine is part of the tablescape. It's part of the the daily rituals. You have a glass of wine at lunch, you have a glass of wine or two at dinner. It is part of our life, their life, versus me being a winemaker in Napa Valley. And don't get me wrong, I love Napa Valley. I love the expression of wines we make. I love what we can do and offer for people in America with Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and the wines that I'm making. However, there is just a cultural divide. Um, there's a small niche of people that appreciate the Italian culture and lifestyle of the French, Spanish, Greek, and then there's, a, there's a, a small niche of people that can afford to live the luxury lifestyle of Napa Valley, which is an incredible lifestyle if you can live it.
0: So, What was the segue back into the United States?
2: The segue back into the United States was extremely um, difficult uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, I went through this existential crisis of what the hell was I going to do. (laughs) It was very difficult to interview for a job or to find jobs when I was living on an island in the Mediterranean. So I did my best to reach out and network. Um, But my initial goal was to come back to the United States, use my sales and marketing experience, and maybe work for an Italian importer, maybe sell wines to restaurants. And when I got to back to New York in 2006, I couldn't find a job. I interviewed at Lauber, I interviewed at Castello Bonfi, which had their headquarters in Long Island. And that was more of the job I wanted. It was a brand management job. I was like, this is gonna be really cool. Um, everything I want in this world with access back to Italy. So they kept telling me, everyone kept telling me, hold off, hold off, hold off, we can't hire right now. Let's talk January 2007. So I'm sitting there in New York City in July of 2006 going, I don't have a job. So I parlayed some of the relationships I had um, and some of the contacts I made in California. So I made my way out to Healdsburg um, in June, and June, July of 2006. And I met with uh, a young winemaker, Pinot Noir, Webb Marquez, who just started a brand with two friends called Anhill Farms. And he said, just use my spare room for a week. Drive around. I'll make some introductions for you. You can come work Harvest for me. I was like, really? Guy didn't know me from Adam. That was pretty nice. It was amazing. Um, And to this day, I owe Webb everything. So I did exactly what he told me to do. And I looked around. And uh, through a network of friends, of his friends, I met up with Andy Smith, who was making wines at Dumal. And when I told Webb I had an opportunity to work at Dumont, he said, do it. So I took an internship opportunity in 2006, started August 1, and worked my way through December, January of that year.
0: What was Andy Uh, Smith like?
2: This is a bit of an aside, but the first meeting I had with Andy was at his house in his backyard um, with my fellow intern from South Africa. And Andy pulled out a Chardonnay and poured it for us and said, I aspire to make these wines. And that wine was a 2002 HDV Chardonnay. Uh, he told me the story and told us the story about Hyde Vineyards and and Albert de Villaine partnering on this vineyard site and and this um, making these Chardonnays here in America, and I was enthralled. I mean, my love and romanticism of wine was just like ding 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 ding. This was I was just caught in all of it. Um, fast forward six months, and Stefan Vivier, the winemaker of uh, of HTV, is now one of my dearest friends in in California. Um, but that was what he was like. Andy had an old world palate, um, an old world aspiration. Um, but what he did so amazingly well was, and I learned this not only at Dumont but at Larkmead, was he ate, he was able to keep one foot in the old world and one foot in the new. And what I mean by that is he was able to produce a wine that was so intriguing to his peers, that you always wanted to taste a Dumas wine or a Larkmead wine or a gemstone wine that he made many years ago, but also consumers went gaga over them. You know, Dumas is one of the most you know, kind of sought after. You don't see the wines around that very much, and they don't make a little bit of wine. They make a lot of wine, and they're consumed you know, in high percentages through direct to the mailing list, and, and similarly with Larkmead. We sell a lot of wine direct to the mailing list. We're a very quiet brand. Because people come to us and they appreciate the experience. So, with Andy Smith, I—he was a very quiet man, and he was very. He he said a lot of things to me that stick with me to this day as a winemaker. Things that you wouldn't think are important, um, but he—he had one of the best palates I've ever witnessed. And he and I, our palates aligned. My palate was not of the quality of his palate, but we liked the same things. We liked the same old world wines. We were able to talk about it together and, and get excited about it. And I got excited about all the stories he would tell me about the, the great wines of the world and and the experiences we had drinking them together. 2006 harvest dinner we had with a 1985 Aubillon. And that, to me, just set it off to say, I want to make Cabernet. I want to make a great Cabernet. I want to make Cabernet like this wine. This was ethereal. And Andy offered me the opportunity to work in the cellars at Larkmead Vineyards.
0: That and seems kind of early in the career to get that opportunity.
2: Mind-blowingly early. Um, he, he called me into his office at, at Copan Custom Crush, which is today uh, punch-down cellars, late into the harvest. Uh, and he said, I want to offer you a job. And I was dumbfounded and said, to do what? And he said, to make wine at Larkmead. Like so,
0: you know, you basically known this guy for one harvest cycle
2: he we we became fast friends, um I admired him, I looked up to him. um, I think that what Andy saw in me was not necessarily uh, he saw a passion and a curiosity about wine. um you know, the first thing I asked Andy when I met him in the cellars of Copan Custom Crush punchdown was, isn't it amazing to be making wine in this facility? It's like a think tank for wine, like there's you know, Wells Guthrie making Copan over here. Jay Maddox making Carlisle and you. And there's 10 other wineries. And, he's, and I said, it's like, it's an amazing experience. And he said, yeah, it's an amazing experience. I learned what not to do. And I was like taken back by this man. And, and and I saw immediately that his eyes were always wide open. And his eyes were always absorbing. And his ears were always absorbing. And his palate was always absorbing wine culture and wine community and wine uh, consumption and wine making. And that rubbed off on me. And he saw that I had this curiosity to do all that. And I, I wanted all those things that he has already achieved. And what I believed he has achieved in his, his framework of being a winemaker. So I was, I was ready to impress him in any, any way, shape or form. But I think part of it was I was older, a little more mature. I had uh, a corporate experience. I can manage a budget. You know, I, I got thrown into Larkmead vineyards with a budget. And I got thrown into having to, in a small organization to help manage a facility that had just been built. So I had a maturity to me that he knew that if he handed me the keys, I would open the doors in the morning and lock them at night. Um, So that I think was a big part of it. He's never told me that. I'm making that assumption.
0: He chose you to be the man on the ground at Larkman. That's what the job was. Yeah.
2: And, and to your point earlier, Levy, I did not, um, he would have to come over from Grayton to drive the forklift and move the barrels around so I could rack them. I was that green, but he gave me a chance and I would never let him down. So I went in, full steam ahead, and for six straight years, I worked in the cellar of Larkmead by myself. Um, We don't make a small amount of wine, eight to 10,000 cases a year, and except for harvest, I I was the only person in that cellar doing all the day-to-day work.
0: That sounds like a lot.
2: I didn't think it was a lot until people told me it was a lot. That was and I still didn't believe them because I was like it's cabernet. Cabernet's pretty self kind of you know self-fulfilling. They it, you, you harvest, you ferment, you barrel down, you rack and blend and you sit and watch. And I didn't watch, I tasted. And that's how I learned wine. That's how I learned meat. I tasted every single moment that I could, was taste and taste and taste. I w- admired Andy Smith's palate memory. He could tell me in any given harvest what a block of Cabernet from the property tasted like in Fermenter on day 20, five years ago. So I was really, really kind of um, nervous that I wasn't able to do that. So I taught myself how to taste and tr- I trained a palate memory about the vineyard site. And I did that every day um, because there was nothing else to do. It was you, know, you can clean, you can manage the facility, you can rack and blend. And yeah, one guy is going to take, it'll take me a week to do 180 barrel racking and blending. Whereas with two guys, you can probably do it in three days um, if you pushed. So I took a little bit extra time and majority of my time was spent educating and training my palate and learning the vineyard site um, and learning what expression of Cabernet would come from Larkmead's site.
0: Which is, feels like that's what Larkmead as a whole was learning at that time, right? Because it was kind of a revitalization period.
2: Yes, you hit the nail on the head. Um, Larkmead was family-owned operation purchased in 1948. It was uh, not only a winery at the time and a vineyard estate. It was one of the largest, biggest, uh, most respected wineries at the time. Andrei Chelczech said the Big Four in Napa Valley uh, during his time were Berenger, Belu, Larkmead, and Inglenook. So Larkmead had um, a lot of chops, and unfortunately, um, due to some medical family issues, they had to sell the winery and and just become farmers. And for you know the greater half of forty years, they were selling their grapes to Inglenook, to Stags Leap, to Chapelet, then to the modern years, selling it to cake bread, and duck horn, um, and then today selling it to Thomas Brown and Realm. And they rethought the vineyard, the daughter of the owners and her husband. They brought the vineyard together under single ownership in 1992. And from that period on, in 1992, there were 25 acres of Chardonnay, 13 acres of Chandon Blanc, Petit Surrat, Pinot Noir. Cabernet was not the focal point. This was early 90s, post phylloxera era they needed to start replanting. So they started with the whites. And in 1995, they started ripping out all the Chardonnay and planting Cabernet. Then the Channon Blanc went. Then the Petit Syrah went. Then the Pinot Noir went. And Cabernet parcel after Cabernet parcel started to be planted. 1995 to the current day. 10-year period, they replanted close to 90 out of the 110 acres. When I arrived in 2006, they started to replant again. And they were fixing some of the mistakes they made. And it's natural to make a lot of mistakes in farming and agriculture, especially as the path of the sun changes and uh, climate changes and, and pallets change. Um, different rootstocks for different soil profiles, different uh, clones for different pallet styles, different, uh, different variables. So starting in 2005, 2006, another round of replanting has happened. And I was part of that. I listened a lot when I was young. And just starting in a business now, I'm part of the conversation in the last couple of years of how to redirect the future growth and development of the vineyard site, and that translates into the wines. So I was very fortunate to be part of you know a redevelopment plan. Larkmead is located in northern Napa Valley in Calistoga. The Vaca Mountains and the Mayacama Mountains will kind of converge, so it creates this little um, hourglass effect, and Larkmead sits right in the center of of the funnel of the hourglass, and the Napa River cuts right through the property. So, if you think about that, everything flows downstream through the river, but then things start to kind of bundle up at the funnel point, and Larkmead sits right there. So, there's an incredible diversity of soil profiles over the millennia of, of seismic activity, of volcanic activity. And we are blessed with 110 acres, which is all contiguous, which spans almost the entire valley floor from Highway 29 to Silverado Trail. And it's broken into three parts. And those three parts have three unique soil profiles. And we basically have three Napa Valley vineyards under one landholding. And that is, to me, is a playground of, of, of learning of what you can produce and how you can produce wines of certain typicity and whether it be, you know, 25 acres of Cortina gravel that produce very high tone, very red-fruited cabernet, not really strong and large in structure, but have the tannin rusticity to make wines for ageability. And then right across the street, you have, you know, heavy clay soils that produce really dense, deep, rich, powerful merlot. And then across the other side of the river, you have, you know, rich loam soils that are um, that are more sandy, that produce structure and brooding, you know, red and black and blue
0: fruit. So as you're revitalizing the property, are you looking back to historical antecedents? Or are you looking to what your neighbors are doing? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of variation on the property. So how do you know what to do with it?
2: When I started at Larkmead in 2006, 2007, it was quite funny. The owner of Larkmead, Cam Baker, you know, saw my resume. saw I worked at Time Magazine and said, you should be the, I want you to write me a history of Larkmead. So I had to go research Larkmead, and throughout that process, um, I uncovered a lot of old aerial footage of vineyards, a lot of old grape contracts, a lot of vineyard maps um, with the varieties like, you know, 27 different varieties were planted at Larkmead over the course of since the 1880s, and, you know, and it's how it's come down to a singular, you know, kind of focus. not a monopole. It's not 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, 67% Cabernet Sauvignon, which is important. Um, and we can put a, talk about the business side of that in a minute. I'll put my business hat on in a, in a minute. But there are aerial footage where we saw there was a lot of plum trees. Um, prior to 1950, grapes were not the largest agricultural crop in Napa Valley. Plums were and other other crops. And so I was looking at places on the vineyard in the 40s and 50s where they were not vineyard. And we then have to think about those sites today. It's like, why were they not vineyard? Well, this is, uh, holds a lot of water. So what can we do in a site, in a parcel that holds a lot of water? We're not going to plant plums because they're not going to be agriculturally sustainable financially. So we want to plant grapes. We need to find the right rootstock for wet soil. And then we need to find the right variety that's going to subsist in that area. And then the row direction came into play as well. So you know, as the course of time in the last 10 years, I've seen harvests start in, in mid-October in 10 years ago, and I've been, in 2015, my harvest was finished in mid-October. Um, that is a 10-year span. So if you're thinking about uh, being a farmer, those extremes in 10 years are something that becomes very challenging. So we're thinking about a lot of the historical precedent, because this, there were extremes 50 years ago, and we're looking at how the land is laid out. But with an eye, you know, now I turn on, put on my business hat, and I'm very fortunate to have the ability to talk to the owner in a way that makes economical and financial sense. And I wouldn't make poor decisions for the property by telling him to plant pelaverga where cabernet should be. Although, interestingly enough, in the '40s, Dr. Hal Omo from uh, UC Davis had a clonal station at Larkmead, and they had 28 rows, and each row was a different variety. And on those, of those rows, they were all Italian, Frazia, Pellaverga, all alternative Piemontese varieties, which are quite interesting. Um, but then also Cabernet Sauvignon, which uh, went on to be the, the clones that were taken to Oakville when the Cabernet Oakville clones in the 1960s arrived. So there was a lot of study done, and we're doing a lot of work with some of the professors in, in Davis.
0: Why to, do you think Omo picked that site to do it, of all the sites you could pick?
2: Upper Napa Valley and Calistoga region is uh, very hot, very dry, very windy. Um, I tend to think that it's very Mediterranean, very Italian-like. As I mentioned earlier, the varieties that Omo were planting, there was a slew of Italian varieties and some I'd never even heard of. And I think that he maybe had a relationship at the time, whether it be a connection through Chellachev, who had a connection through Bruno Solari, and gave him an opportunity to do this experimentation You know, back then there was you know dusty dirt streets with you know cars and uh, you know that came down the lane one at a time. And when you came down the lane to check on your grapes, what did you do? You sat inside and you had lunch. And it was three hours later you opened a few bottles of wine, and and it was good friendships and uh, long lasting relationship there. So I I I think that there was an opportunity there that he was given by the owners of Larkmead and uh, the prior owners of Larkmead, the Salmina family as well, that. Could have been you know, experimentation. You have two Italian families that own Larkmead for over 100 years. And this professor from the Indiana Jones of, of grape growing comes in and says, I want to do some Italian clonal trials. Sure. This is, these are my grapes. I'm Italian. Let's do this. And so we had a lot of gravel soil that where you had tremendous amount of drainage, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress on the vines because it, the water didn't hold in the soils. We've learned this over time, that deep irrigation at Larkmead is useless because we waste water. Because we can do a nine or 10 or 12 or 15 hour irrigation and we're just wasting water. At about a six gallon, six hour irrigation is pretty much the max before we see we're not wasting water anymore. and We start to see proper vine sap flow and change to uh, the chemistry and the nutrient uh, take up. So it's an extremely intense site, and that's why I'm picking Cabernet in August in 2015. It's uh, it's a very early ripening site. We're two weeks ahead of a lot of people in the valley. One is due to the the style in which we choose to make the wines. Two is because of the stress level. So a lot of wind, a lot of uh, a lot of heat, and you know very high drainage soils. We have sand on on one side of the vineyard. We have rock on the other side of the vineyard, and where we have our uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot. It's all clay based, which is holds water very well, and that's a very that's the smallest parcel. It's only a uh, twelve acres on a hundred and ten acre site, so a lot of a lot of water stress
0: on our property. And you're getting soil influences from both mountain ranges. So, yes, basically because you're getting washed down from both, correct? Which is unusual. Yeah, most it's, of the time people are closer to one or the other.
2: Yes, we we feel that we have you know, the best, we have the best of both benchlands. We have the Mayakamas and the Vacas on both sides. And because it's so tight, we have been very fortunate um, over time to have built a diversity of soil profile.
0: So what about that wine style that you mentioned? I mean, how does that evolve with the site? I mean, what's going on with the style?
2: As we've evolved and we've learned the site a little bit better, we've wanted to pay respect to the site. And as you get into harvesting more Riper fruit, um, you start to lose site specificity and site typicity, and that to me is disrespectful.
0: So Uh, the markers of site start to go away as you get riper and riper.
2: Yes, that is something that, in my opinion, makes for delicious hedonistic wines with a lot of big flavor and and juiciness and cocktail wines, and those wines are are well received, and I drink them um, as well. However, I want the secondary and tertiary notes. I want the complexity and nuance. I want to be able to see, I want to be able to peel a layer off the top. I want to lose the baby fat on a wine in two or three years and and open up this this kind of floral and red-fruited and bright and structured Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, harking back to that 1985 Aubrey, um, which we know is not 100% Cabernet, but it was surreal. It was ethereal. It was something that, to me, is the pinnacle of what I want to achieve with Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley, and once you build, once you start to pick in, in higher densities of sugar, um, where you have you start to lose a little bit of uh, the water in the grape, and you start to concentrate the sugars, you start to lose a little bit of the nutrients that have been taken up by the vine itself, and in doing that, you lose a little bit of the terroir, and I I don't think that's a new understanding. I think everyone believes that. But the style of wines that we wish to make are very respectful to the terroir and to this family that has had the foresight to own this property for sixty plus years. Uh, and that, to me, is uh, that's the most important thing I can do is is be extremely transparent with our winemaking and to be um, to allow someone to see into the soil profiles that I have the good fortune of you know going to work with every
0: day. And what's the business side of that? So the business side of
2: Larkmead is um, when they built the winery in 2005, they built a a tasting room as well that opened in 2006. At the time, Larkmead was sold predominantly through distribution. Uh, They were making the wines at Napa Wine Company. They were selling very little direct-to-consumer, less than 5%. The price points are very low. So when they opened up the tasting room, there was an opportunity to welcome people in, show them the wines that we were making, and in 2006, it was if someone drove through the driveway, it was like, oh my God, someone's here. <laughs> and they'd run downstairs and you uh, welcome them in, you pour in some wine, and they liked it. And then it was a word of mouth game. Not only word of mouth through the consumers, but it's a word of mouth in Napa Valley that there's this new winery on the block. Um, you, know, you always want to be the instarter to tell someone to go somewhere that no one else is going. And I think Larkmead was a beneficiary of that for many years, from 2006, 2007, all the way through 2009, 2010. Oh, like an insider's
0: tip. Like, oh, hey, I bet you haven't. Yeah. It's not on a normal route.
2: Yeah. And 3 million people come to Napa Valley every year. Only 66% 66 of those 3 million people don't make it past St. Helena. Larkmead's five minutes north of St. Helena. So already, we we only have a million people to choose from. And so if you're going to come to Larkmead, you want to come to Larkmead. So... You've either heard about us through word of mouth, through friends and consumers. You heard about us through another winery or a restaurant sommelier in Napa Valley. Or you heard about us through critical reviews. And we got a very refined clientele to come to see us. They wanted to come see us. And that they started to consume our wine to levels that we could not supply. Um, We only were making eight to 10,000 cases a year. Um, the mailing list started to grow. The demand for the wine started to grow. We had a couple of tough vintages for yield in 2008, 2009, kind of the heart of the, the drought at the time. We had to pull wine back from distribution. And that made us a little bit of a quiet brand out nationally, I think, especially on the East Coast in New York. But there was a, you asked about the economic impact. That was, now we're able to sell wine at 100% uh, retail and to a client base that, was, that demanded it, that wanted it. In Larkmead, went from less than 5% direct to consumer to almost 90% direct to consumer in five years. Our wines, when I started, our wines were priced between $45 and $75. 2016, our prices are going to range from $75 to $300 a bottle. And it has a lot to do with production levels, smaller parcels, smaller lots, making smaller case quantities. Um, We're not making bigger, bolder, richer wines um, to compete with some of our neighbors uh, and sell them at $200 or $300 a bottle. We're actually making more refined wines, um, more classically trained wines at smaller production levels at higher prices. Wines that we feel that can compete on the global stage for for Cabernet Sauvignon. And that to me is is the goal, to make Larkmead a recognized global wine estate. We took it upon ourselves to classify our vineyard. Um, We have, as I mentioned earlier, a vineyard that is broken into three parts. And we started to classify that as if you were classifying an appellation, for lack of a better term. Um, You know, we classified part of our vineyard as Grand Cru, part of our vineyard as Premier Cru, and then the rest of our vineyard is village. And we use a a very non-Bordelais concept of singular wine to make multiple wines across the portfolio. We've bottled 2013 wines under, under new labels with new classifications. They're the next generation of Larkmead.
0: So Andy Smith, he was there for several years. You were working under his consultancy, under his umbrella, and then he segues out. So how did it evolve?
2: Getting to know Andy over time was amazing because I got to see and taste wines with him, older vintages of Larkney that he made, and he got to tell me a little bit about his philosophy. And when he was young... He, he was an assistant winemaker for Paul Hobbs when he first learned of Larkmead and he first started working at Larkmead in 1998. And when he spun off and started his own consulting business and took Larkmead under his wings in 2000, he wanted to put his stamp on Larkmead. He wanted to put a stamp on Napa Valley. He used 100% New Oak. He picked at very high sugars. He wanted to make wines of the moment, which was very popular, mid, late 90s, early aughts. And he, over time he kind of started to think about what he was doing and he said, I don't like drinking these wines anymore. And when I came in and it was a bit of a check and a balance where we can play off of each other and talk about why these wines were what they were. We are able to, you know, kind of bring down the style a little bit and you couldn't do that immediately. I mean, Putting the marketing and sales hat on for a second, you weren't able to kind of change gears uh, very quickly. So, little by little, vintage by vintage, we pulled back on the heavy toast oak. We went to medium plus. Then we went to medium. We did this over vintages. Um, we pulled back on new oak percentage from 100 to 90 to 75 to 60. We did this over vintages. Um, we pulled back on our picking. We had this great thing. We Andy and I would you know, go to walk the vineyard uh, during harvest. And he would say, when do you think we should pick? And I would say, Friday. He goes, well, I think we should pick on Monday. We'd settle on Saturday. So it was, we always said, let's talk, let's think about what we want to do and meet somewhere in the middle. Always pick the day before you think you should pick. And that was the new philosophy in 07 when I had the good fortune of being tutored by Andy. And we worked together for a number of years and I worked looking up to him and, and, and respectful of him and his wines. I thought he was doing amazing things at Larkmead. And, um, and over time we, he kind of gave me more and more responsibility. And by 2012, he, uh, gave me the, the winemaker title, um, which was, which was very, very, I never thought I would actually just even be a winemaker. So by 2012, I had, you know, full, you know, full title. And, um, he gave me more responsibility in the cellars during harvest and allowed me to, to kind of, you know, see the wines through under my direction, um, during the, you know, the fermentary period. And that is important. That's when the wines are made. That's the style the wines are made based on the picking decisions and based on the fermentation management. So it was incredible responsibility. He was always there to protect and, and make sure we were doing the right thing. And I think he was, happy with you know the outcomes and you know he blessed all the wines, he blessed the final blends and he he made sure we put wines in the bottle that he was respectful of and, and felt that they were his own and and he was happy and proud of. So I got that from him as a winemaker and and you always want to put wines in the bottle that you're proud of. I I wouldn't want to sit here with you and, and pour a bottle of lark meat that I had to make excuses for. That's not what I want to do. Um, I want to be here to, you know, tell you this is why I like this wine and why we did it. Um, and that was uh, that was great education for someone who didn't have viticultural background myself, what I'm speaking of, uh, didn't have an enology background, didn't go to school for this. I came at winemaking as a pure consumer first and winemaker second. I don't want to drink it. I'm not going to make it. That's that's my philosophy.
0: (laughs) So, when does the site specificity start to really come through? Can you taste this on the Cabernet in the grapes, or is it something that happens post-fermentation or during élevage? I mean, when do you start to see the difference? Because you have these different soils, they're close together, you have these different parcels. I mean, besides the bricks number, which is different for the parcels, depending, you know, on what's going on, when does it taste different? Yeah.
2: Well, that's another funny Andy Smith story. And 2006. I'm an intern. We're walking the vineyard, and the owner happened to be there. He didn't move up to Larkmead until officially when he retired as a lawyer in 2007. And we're walking through the vineyard tasting grapes in August, um, September. And Andy's talking about the wine. And the owner looked at me and said, what is he talking about? It's a grape. And he was there talking about the wine. And that, to me, I said, I need to learn how to do that. I need to be able to taste a grape and talk about the wine. I need to talk about this wine 24 months from now when it's being bottled. That's what Andy did best. He saw the future. And that was something I needed to replicate. So when we're out in the field, when we're tasting, everyone asks the same questions. He interns every year, people, you know, consumers, visitors, sommiers, retailers, anyone who comes to the site and we're tasting grapes, they ask, what am I tasting? What am I looking for? I said, pretend it's a wine. Smash the grape up in your mouth, feel the tannins, feel the acid, feel the freshness, feel the density, feel the power, feel the fruitiness. Pretend it's a wine. All the things you would look for in a a glass of wine or a sip of wine, look for it in a grape. And then be, be able to think about the future. Think about where it's going to go. If you are picking a grape at 28 Bricks or 24 bricks, and you're putting that into fermentation, and you bring it to barrel, and then it has 20 months of elevage. What is it going to taste like when it's 28 bricks and reduced of water and heavily concentrated, and then it sits in a barrel for 20 months? What's it going to taste like at, at, at that period? You have to ask yourself that question. And if you don't, um, You're going to have something at the end of the day you may or may not be proud of. That may be exactly what you're going for, or you will say to yourself, I don't want to drink that. And that is how I think of the Cabernet Sauvignon at Larkmead. Do I want to drink this 24 months from now? So I am not allowing this. I'm I'm thinking about the freshness that's going to be there, the red fruit and the power and the structure and the dustiness of gravel. I want that. And if I don't get it 20 months from now, I'm not going to drink it. And I'm not gonna be proud of that wine. Um, so yeah, so I mean to have gravel, to have clay, to have sand in one site, and you have fruit and aroma and floral aromatic profile, you have density, and you have structure in three different profiles with significant amount of acreage, not just a single acre. I'm talking 45 acres of sandy loam and 30 acres of gra- Cortina gravel. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And so from there, we, take, we don't make it a homogenized site. So there's, we have 50 different parcels over 110 parcels. So there's two acres on average. There are eight root stocks. There are 16 Cabernet clones. Um, vine age is everything from three to 20. So there's a lot of variability that we get to work with. And that's, again, the fun part of the job. When the Cabernet is resting for 20 months in barrel, those are the things you're thinking about. You're thinking about how the vines are achieving their characteristics in the glass over their vine age. You're thinking about what clones to be considering in a 10-year redevelopment plan. You're thinking about what, what's the future of this parcel if it's not, going, it's not producing high-quality Merlot. So those are the things that you think about in, when Cabernet is going through its
0: élevage. Warm site with a lot of wind. How does that affect the trellising and canopy decisions?
2: We replanted a significant amount of lark meat because of poor road direction. We have also, starting in 2010, have now put on shade cloth on over 70 acres of the vineyard to help against direct sunlight. Because morning side ends at 10 a.m., and then the afternoon starts at 11 a.m., The hottest point of the day at Calistoga is around, in the midsummer, is about 6 p.m., between 4 and 6 p.m. So we're getting a lot of afternoon sun. And that afternoon sun is drawing down um, water, and it's also creating more concentrated uh, grapes. So we're trying to protect that. So we put a lot of shade cloth on the vines. You know, a 70-acre investment in shade cloth is pretty significant. The wind characteristics in that vineyard, it's kind of, the wind is coming from the, the Chalk Hill Gap from the Sonoma Coast, and it comes down through Calistoga and into the vineyard site, and it is dehydrating. You know, vines transpire, the leaves, the canopies transpire, and the wind is coming through. It's like, you know, living in, oh, you don't sweat in a very dry climate. Well, the vines are dealing with the same thing. So the humidity is lost in the canopies, and it's causing them to work harder, and therefore, they're they're more photosynthesis and more metabolization of sugar eventually in the grapes. So that's where we're getting earlier harvesting and riper seasons in august as opposed to (laughs) mid-october
0: so it seems like a lot of change and revitalization lark made over say the last decade right yes what's the next decade gonna hold
2: we started i wasn't there at the time but andy smith and people told him he wouldn't make great wine until he had his own winery and he built a winery in 2005 then that winery was built, and they said, you won't really make great wine till you farm your own grapes. We need to get rid of the vineyard management company and hire a vineyard manager and an on-the-ground team. 2007, he makes a, a tremendous investment in buying farm equipment and farming his own grapes. Well, <laughs> less than five years later, we tell him, you know the vineyard doesn't match the winery or vice versa. The winery doesn't match the vineyard. We need to retrofit the winery to match the vineyard. So we work with 28 different parcels on the, on the vineyard, but we only have 12 tanks. And our harvests are so compact that we're picking you know, the first parcel to the last parcel within 17 to 20 days. Ferments last longer than that. So we're having to make decisions in the cellar that, that are compromising. So He builds us another winery. And now we have 28 tanks for 28 parcels. And that was completed in 2013. And that is uh, is the first steps of the future of the next 10 years. The ability to parcel by parcel identify the nuances and the complexities of different Cabernet on different rootstocks and different soil profiles. That's the future. There's a lot of learning to do. I'm I'm, I'm not an expert in any of this. And I like data. And I like to um, see the sensory impacts and, and, and find that information on data and say, well, this translated to this on paper. Wow, um, how do we now translate that into the vineyard, into a vine that's going to take us 10 years to develop? So that's the next 10 years. It's, uh, it's, it's more refinement.
0: In the meantime, you started the Masticin Project, which is your own project.
2: The impetus for that was very nostalgic. There was a lot of romance in in my heart, in my mind, as a wine drinker. And I lived in Sicily for a year. We drank a lot of white wines. We drank a lot of white wines in very warm climate. I was surrounded by the salinity of the Mediterranean. I was surrounded by floral, blossomy notes. I was surrounded by a lot of, um, a lot of white wine. And when I moved to Napa Valley, I was surrounded by a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon. And it's very warm. And you don't drink Cabernet Sauvignon in the middle of the summer every night of the week. You are looking for something bright, something fresh that's sealed at well it takes a lot of beer to make to make great wine. Well, you drink a lot of beer, a lot of cold refreshing, bright, bright beverages. So in Napa Valley we have a tremendous beautiful elegant wine shops, but they sell Napa Valley wines. I look at wine buying as I look at book buying or magazine buying. I had a relationship with my, or record buying, relationship with the vendor. You go in, you talk, you chat, you talk about what's good, you get reviews from them, what they like, what they don't like, make recommendations, and you purchase and you experience and explore. Well, that wasn't capable. I wasn't capable to do that in Napa Valley or Sonoma County. I drove to San Francisco, I went to Beyond Divino, and I picked up a case of Italian wines and most of them white because, you know, six, seven, eight months of the year in Napa, it's 90 degrees. I wanted something bright and fresh. And that was great. But every year, uh, you fill out a report every year. It's called the grape crush report in California. And then at the end of the year, at the end of the cycle, you actually get the responses back. So you look at, oh, how much Cabernet was produced and how much it cost. Well, they list every single grape that was crushed in California that year. And I'm sitting there looking at a slew of Italian grape varieties, red and white, and saying, where the hell is this? where the hell is Rabola Jala in Napa? And uh, voila, Google search, and you find out about George Vare. and then you ask someone about that, and you, they tell you, oh yeah, Steve Mathiasen farms George's vineyard. You get Steve's number, you call Steve. Steve said, oh yeah, George is actually selling grapes this year. Um, you should give him a call. Here's his number. And you go meet George Vare in his vineyard in August of 2009. Um, and that was it. I, I I literally, that was the process. It was you know, phone call to to Steve Mathias and a phone call to Tegan Pasalakwa, um, Andy Smith helping me out, uh, my viticulturist at Larkmead helping me out, my buddy who I went to business school, who put me on the island of Sicily, decided to be my business partner. He said, "You're crazy, but let's do this. Let's make wine." And on June 5th, we got an LLC. On August 20th of 2009, I'm picking grapes. Less than two months, and I was just overwhelmed with the concept. And my my thought process was. What can California do with Italian white varieties? Um, I can make Superfriolans. We have sunshine, we have power. I'm working with a Tocai Friulano, I've Bola I wanna get some Sauvignon Blanc, let's make a singular uh, Vino Bianco uh, in a very Friulian way. A lot of sunshine, a lot of richness, see if I can retain some acidity. Um, a wine that I wanna drink in a hot summer night in, in Napa Valley.
0: So you are thinking of blend?
2: I was thinking of blend. I want to make a single wine. Um, a single wine was logistically easier. You can you you it's scalable with regards to buying labels and capsules and 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 going out to the marketplace and not having to sell a diverse portfolio, which now I know is actually better to have a diverse portfolio than a single wine. It's a lot easier to sell that way.
0: Oh yeah, because you have some market presence or why?
2: Different strokes for different folks. Um, you know, you have an esoteric white blend with Tokai and ribolo, grapes that people ne- may never have heard of. Then you have a, a Chardonnay, a Sauvignon Blanc. And now today I have a Greco and Pinot Grigio blend. So you can, you can cater your audience, uh, cater to your audience based on you what know, they need. What, like they what need. the
0: account needs. Like yeah. the sommelier can say, like this would work at this restaurant. That yes. kind of thing.
2: Yeah. That was a blessing in disguise. I started out my first vintage with five white grape varieties and I didn't want to make three wines and I did. And the reason for that is the vineyards and the wine styles told me what they wanted to be. I wanted to blend Sauvignon Blanc into my flagship wine, Anya, because I had this in my head that I was going to make a white blend from Friuli that had tokai Ribola, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc in it. Because that's what I saw in bottles from Vida Romans and, and others. And that didn't work. The Sauvignon Blanc didn't want to be there. And I had to fight to pull it out, in essence. Because um, on paper, it was supposed to be there, but it didn't work. And that taught me a huge lesson in winemaking. Be respectful of the vineyards. Be respectful of the wines. And let them lead you down the path they want to go. And that created a 50 case bottling of Sauvignon Blanc, which was, excuse my French, but a bastard child in the portfolio, which became one of the most popular wines in the portfolio. Um, and I respect that wine today due to it being a bit of an atypical Sauvignon Blanc from California. And that, I think, is why it gets so much, um, so much support in the community.
0: But doing whites, you know, in the lark meat facility probably allowed you some tank space, right? You yes. Know, get it all done before the reds come in. Yes.
2: So. Masakan started with a business plan, and a business plan, you know, from penny one to the financing of that wine. It also started with a timeline of a business plan: when the wines would be produced, when they would be bottled, when they would be sold. I anticipated white grape varieties. Working with white, I can work predominantly, uh, logistically, in August. You know, I was looking for, uh, with the vineyard sites that I was working with were early ripening due to virus and due to age. And they weren't achieving the, the, the phenolic ripeness or the sugar maturity that I anticipated uh, due to reasons like virus and age. So they were being picked earlier, and I figured it would be a great opportunity to get in there, you know, kind of grease the wheels a little bit, um, a little pre-season. To you know, warm up to the Larkmead uh, harvest, which is you know my my main focus, and it gave me an opportunity to kind of get some stuff in there, get it in barrel, and then once Larkmead harvest started to kick in, these wines were going through the fermentary process in barrel, and they were kind of ticking away and doing their thing, and you know give them a stir every every other day and check on the sugars, and and once they were ready, can you know shut them down and and you know just keep my focus on. On Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot at Larkmead. Um, but that was a huge part of the plan. Uh, and it was what the owner, you know, when I told the owner what I was interested in doing and he gave me the, the green light, he was mindful and respectful of, of it not interfering with my, with my, my work at Larkmead. And, and I told him it wouldn't. And then 2015 rolls around and we're picking Cabernet in August. I had four Masakan harvests after my first pick of Cabernet at Larkmead. That to me is mind blowing. I don't know why that happens. <laughs> I mean, I know why it happens. I mean, with the climate change and, and the vineyard site we're working with at Larkmead is beginning getting progressively and progressively earlier due to the stress of the drought and the site itself. But it was not what I bargained for. Uh, it was the most 15 hour days I've ever worked and during harvest.
0: But how has it worked out otherwise? I mean, in what, terms of uh, these two wines and that oh, that
2: it's, been, it's been great. I actually, uh, I, I truly believe that Masacon has made me a better winemaker. And the reason for that is it's made me a better understanding of vineyard sites. It's gotten me out of my estate. It's gotten me out of my cellar palette. It's gotten me out of Larkmead Lane, uh, where you, a lot of people would be blessed to, to work in a single site um, every day of their, their career on a vineyard that's 110 acres and a winery that is built to match the vineyard. And I'm blessed to do that. But you can get you can get a cellar pallet you could start being myopic so what Masakan has allowed me to do is allowed me to travel to russian river it's allowed me to travel to mount beater to carneros to child's valley pope valley oak knoll to see different sites see different varieties grown in those sites interact with uh, different growers and different farmers interact with different different generations i mean old vines planted in 1946 with a farmer who's farmed it for 30 years to work with Larry Hyde and Carneros and his son, Chris, who's now taking over. I can't tell that guy how to grow better grapes, no matter how smart or no matter how many degrees I had or whatever. This is, you know, Larry Hyde's been doing it. It Took me a couple of years of bottling 100% Chardonnay um, before I had asked Larry and Chris if I can use Hyde as a single vineyard designate. I didn't want to let them down. I take a, a, a different approach to Hyde. I look at it from a different prism, And what I mean by that is there are a lot of classic Chardonnays, uh, California Chardonnays made of Old Wente on Hyde Vineyards from Kistler and Dumas, uh, Consgard, Countless wines made from Hyde Vineyard that are stunning. And my approach is completely different. Um, No ML, lower alcohol, a little bit more of the purity of Chardonnay as a variety, a little bit more of the citric bend in the wine. I want to see Hyde that isn't, 14.5% 14.5% alcohol, and didn't go through full ML, and is not fermented in 66 to 100% new oak, I want to see what it tastes like. But I was afraid Larry and Chris Hyde weren't going to like that. So eventually I, I got up the guts to ask them if I can use their name, and they said yes. And that was, a, I was very proud that day that they let me use their name on my
0: bottle of wine. And you also work with a vermouth project under Massacre.
2: Yes, um, that was a complete... Um, mistake. <laughs> it wasn't a mistake. It was a trial. It was, I, you know, Tokai friano is a very reductive variety. And if you have the good fortune and ability to cold stabilize it early and drop out some of the pectins and, and kind of clarify the juice and pull the clean juice off and, and ferment it, you'll make a very clean, very pure representation of the variety. Well, I did that for a couple of years, but when you're doing that clarification process, you lose a lot of your juice and you, therefore you lose bottled wine. So I said, I'm not gonna do that. Well, I'm gonna do that, but I'm gonna try something. I pressed, whole cluster press to tank, I brought the wine to barrel, and the first, I brought one barrel, the alpha barrel, down. I settled the wine for two nights, I racked off the clean juice, and then I took the third barrel, the dirty barrel, the lazy barrel, uh, or the third cut, and put it into barrel. And so I had the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and then I had the clarity in the middle. and I did everything normal with those two barrels. I let them ferment. I let them finish. And they were reductive as hell. I mean, to the point where you could smell them walking 20, 30 feet away. So I, I started to rack them off the heavy leaves. I racked them. I splashed them through a tub and screen um, and then pumped them back into clean barrels. I did that twice during the process. I did a lot of batonage to kind of release the CO2, which would you know, hopefully release some of the sulfides and I could not get them clean. So I wasn't going to sell them as bulk wine. This was 2011, three years into my, into my process, and no one was really buying bulk Toccai that smelled reductive at the time anyway. So I, I had, this circles back, um, everything goes into a full circle, with Webb Marquez at Anhill Farms, who was actually for years trying, uh, trialing vermouth projects uh, on the side. And I sat him down and I said, You know, I have this really stinky wine that I don't want to sell as bulk. And I've been making Amaro at home for the last three years since I returned, or the last five years since I returned from Sicily. And I'd like to see if I can commercialize this wine by making a dry white vermouth, but I will only do it with your permission. And he was like, You're crazy, do it. So I did a bunch of trials at home. You know, I used the spice box that I was using for the Amaros. And I sat down with my wife and we, had a Friday night date and we put 12 different uh, ball jars in front of us with uh, Everclear and, and different herbs and spices and we knocked it down from 12 to f- 6 to 4 to 2 to 1, um, steeped it for a couple of weeks, added the Tokai, steeped it, found uh, uh, finally found a recipe that I liked and needed my wife to push me and say, just do it. I was nervous to do it and I ended up buying some uh, organic herbs and spices um, from a shop in the Mission in San Francisco. I called up uh, St. George Spirits and got some fresh, clean Pinot Grigio uh, distillate. And I macerated my herbs and spices, blended it back into the wine, barrel aged for an additional six months, um, added a little bit of sugar at the end to soften the bitterness and made a really delicious, candied, beautiful, uh, for lack of a better term, dry white vermouth. Um, Bottled 50 cases. And hand bottled it and uh, people went nuts. And I was like, wow. Well, I was like, anyone can make 50 cases, right? And sell it. I'm like, that's easy. Did 100? Wow. It, anyone can make 100 cases and sell it. That's easy. Wow. I was like, I was, people were all over it. I said, it made it in 11, made it in 12. And then 13 happened. And 13 was a very difficult vintage um, for, for Masakon. I had a lot of wine that didn't make the cut for my final blends. So I ended up making a very, I was coming off of selling 100 cases of vermouth at the same time. I was, had my fall release of vermouth and I was selling it like crazy. And the 13 vintage was going on. And i was like, I'm going to make, I'm just going to make vermouth. I'm done with white wine. Um, and I ended up making 275 cases of 2013 vermouth. Um, insane. Well, what I learned is, and this I should have known intuitively, um, working with oak barrels, I use Quasia wood as my bittering agent. Uh, it's something I've sourced over the years from Brazil. And in Brazil, you have hot and humid climates, so the wood tends to have a little bit more of a softer texture uh, on the palate and the bitterness. Um, I needed so much that the my, my source in San Francisco couldn't find Brazilian Quasia. So like, oh, we got another organic a source and um, I can get it to you by next Thursday. I'm like, cool, do it. I didn't put two and two together. That came from Mexico, hot and dry climate. Bittering agent was much more intense. I ended up not realizing it, not changing the quantities of the recipe. And I made <laughs> 275 cases of what I deemed to be 750 mil grapefruit bitters. <laughs> it's so pithy and so bitter, but s- quinine in a sense that it really, truly, you know, it, it takes a really strong palated man or woman to get into my 2013 vermouth. And I'm fine with that. So I sold 150 cases of it. Um, I love that this is a category. I think it's it's really cool. Does it make sense financially and economically? Not a shot in hell. So I, I'm making one that you can put it over ice. Um, I always liked my vermouth, uh, white vermouth over ice with orange bitters and an orange peel, and and I'm the 14 is going back to those those roots, and it'll be much more. You can you'll be able to move a bottle of 750 as opposed to you know kind of you know splashing it over a martini glass and dumping it out, and it'll be a lot harder to do that with. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's you can you can you can move bottles a little bit better. With a, with a softer, cleaner, fresher, you know, kind of aperitif wine, you know, the dry version of Lillet, which is, I think, would be where I'd like to be in, in, as a vermouth maker. I would like someone to say, yeah, I, Dan's vermouths is, you know, I've graduated out of the sweetness of Lillet and moved into the dry uh, Massacan.
0: Dan Petroski has gone full circle several times. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. I appreciate it. Dan Petroski of Larkmead Vineyards and also Massacan in Napa Valley. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley.